an amazing age in that we can find almost anything that we want when we need it, or even before we need it, or even if we don't need it, right? Um, you know, you can go on Amazon and find pretty much anything. And, you know, years and years ago, if you wanted to find something particular, you might have to go to a special store to find it. And those stores are harder and harder to find these days because if you can't find it on Amazon, you can find it somewhere else online. And when there's a really good product that's created that people find useful, pretty soon you're going to find 10 copies of it within a couple weeks. And they're selling it for 20% less. Right? And we go for it, don't we? Go for the cheapest one. And why do we do that? You know, it's, it, there's this convenience to the way our lives are constructed now. And we'll take it even if it's a counterfeit. But, you know, the passage this week gives us these four short admonitions to, uh, you know, from Christ and that challenge us to discern between these two ways. There's this way of the counterfeit, and then there's the way of truth. And so it's asking us to slow down a bit and to think carefully about what is the way of truth. And what is the counterfeit? So let's read this closing section of the Sermon on the Mount together. Uh, I'll start in uh, Matthew chapter 7 in verse 13. And if it's in your pew Bibles, it's on page 812, if you need that. Enter by the narrow way, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many... For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one 
who had authority and not as their scribes. They were astonished at his teaching. This is pointing back to the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's not just these few passages today. So this is the closing section here of the Sermon on the Mount that we're coming to. And we see here that Jesus spoke truth. His words were authoritative and his hearers were astonished. And that could be extended to the whole sermon. And so Jesus is casting a grand vision for what a new people should look like. This is not just a moral teaching. It's pointed towards eternity while also describing what new life looks like, lived out in everyday lives. And he was calling his hearers to join him in that vision. And so these last few vignettes tie together Christ's message in the sermon. In the modern evangelical church, we often focus on salvation in a true-false sense. Are you going to hell or not? Are you saved? And that is a valid question. But the Sermon on the Mount is presenting a broader vision for us. The salvation is more than whether or not you're going to hell. It's entering into Christ's kingdom. So salvation is holistic. Others connect the sermon to other things, like the Old Testament law in particular. And, uh, but the Sermon on the Mount is not about ramping up the weight of the law as much as it is about um, pointing to Christ's fulfillment of the law. And, and we see Christ even say that. Right? That he, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So it's not just ramping up intensity to show how bad a person you are. It does use hyperbole to make points. And there's you know, reasons why Jesus uses that as a literary device, using hyperbole. But Jesus came to fulfill the law. And he brings the new covenant. He brings new life for a new people. And so the sermon is saying, here is what their life looks like. And salvation has an end in mind. And so Christ's church should look like his future kingdom. And this is the new covenant promise. Right? It entails aspects of our future and also aspects of our present. And so in this brief section, Jesus is calling out the counterfeit. And as he does this, In the rest of the sermon, he is also pointing to the goodness and virtue of following God's ways and calling us to put these things into practice. So it's it's wisdom literature in its own way, highlighting the contrast between these two ways laid out at the end. So you can also see a trajectory in these four stories. There's two gates, a, a narrow gate and a wide gate. So there's a way that leads to life, enter by that gate. There's two trees, a good tree and a bad tree. You will know them by their fruit. Bad fruit is a bad sign in your life. There's two testimonies, a genuine testimony and a counterfeit. Kingdom citizens do the will of the Father. And then there's two foundations, a firm foundation and a sandy foundation. Put these things into practice. So there's a sense in which this was the thrust of the Old Testament wisdom literature as well. Right, salvation does aim at an end, and redemption is not divorced from application in our lives. And 
We are redeemed unto something. So think of what the new covenant means. It was instituted to bring new life in reality. Because of sin, we need new life. And Jesus is pointing us toward that new life. And so, let's get into this section talking about the narrow gate. Right? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So, two gates and two ways. Right? So, as you dissect parables, people ask these questions. Well, what are the two gates and what are the two ways? Which came first, the gate or the way? Is it talking about faith? Or is it talking about the Christian life? And some think, relying on Luke 13, that the gate is entering into heaven. And then others see the gate as faith proceeding, walking along the way, based on the order in Matthew. And still others think that there's not enough evidence to tease out the difference. And then others think that it's both at the same time because of parallelism. So why does this matter? Well, it orients us to what precisely Jesus was saying here. Is he talking about entering into faith? Or is he talking about the way in which we follow? And I think the gate and the way are one and the same. And it's talking about what a life characterized by following Christ looks like. And there's no need to separate the two out. And... Uh, you know, faith from following. And I, I don't think the original hearers would have needed to parse that out in that way. There's also this narrow and wide, right, which is kind of the point here between the gates and the ways. There's the narrow and the wide. And you're not going to take a lot of things with you through a narrow gate. Right? It's constrained. It brings difficulty. And you have to move where the gate forces you to move. And because of this constriction and difficulty, few will choose that way. While on the Broadway, you can cross at any point you like. There's freedom to move about. There's room to flex. And you can carry a lot of stuff with you as you go. I'm reminded of the Castle Playground in Benbrook. And if you've ever been there, if you've got kids... There's a few little passageways through there. And our four-year-old likes me to follow him through the passageways. And I have to bend and flex and crouch down to make my way through. And it'd be much easier if I could just walk around. There's ways for for the big folks to get around there. And I wouldn't have to be so uncomfortable walking through there if I did that. And... I could fit with no discomfort. And the New Testament has a lot to say about meeting affliction and discomfort when taking the narrow way, right? Second Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comp- uh, comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal, Right? The idea of two ways is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, but look at these two destinations also. They're, the narrow way leads to life, and the broad way leads to death. And there's an unexpected contrast there. That difficulty is the way that leads to life, and 
the way of ease leads to death. It's similar to other contrasts we see in Scripture, like the last will be first and the first last. We also see places where two destinations are laid out. Right? There's the Lamb's Book of Life that Brett has mentioned, and then there's also you know, the Book of Daniel. There's, there's a book. And they speak to these two destinations. We, we might be tempted to think that the easy way now, which looks good to us, will lead to a better life tomorrow. But sin is deceptive because the way of simplicity, honor, virtue, loving the Lord, it may be a much simpler life. Though it's overlooked by the world around us, it has great fruit in eternal life. And so he's saying choose the narrow way. All right. A good tree versus a bad tree. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So who are these False prophets. Notice that the, the law and the prophets is mentioned earlier in the sermon in, in Matthew five seventeen and also in seven twelve, the passage from last week. There Jesus explains how he fulfills the law of God. In in a way, the whole sermon is laying that out, that agenda of God's will for us, for our lives, and the role of the prophet is to point people toward that will of God. And so who are these false prophets? You know, if you've been around the church long enough, you will see people point to certain archetypes of what they consider to be a wolf. Right? We need to be careful how tunnel vision can make us miss some things. We can assume we know what the wolf looks like. Beware of thinking that one thing that you don't like is the archetype of the wolf. At some point to slick teachers who tickle ears. Others point to trolls who are always attacking others. The winsome wolf and the troll wolf. And both are valid examples, and I'm sure you can come up with others. But all have the same appetite and the same fruit. The difference is whether they've gained some authority somewhere or not. Right? The scary thing is that they're among the flock. Right? They're not all out there. So beware also of wolves that may be a little closer to home. And don't cheer on a wolf just because you agree with them. Right From the passage, what are the essential elements? They present a false understanding of the will of God, both through their teaching and also through their practice. Wolves are defined by their appetites. They're recognized by their fruit. First, the, the real magnitude of their bad fruit may not be immediately obvious, but in the end, it will be. So the imagery of ravenous wolves portrays their readiness to attack. It's like Satan stalking around like a roaring lion. 
And they turn the language around sometimes, even with those who disagree with them. They can call the people that disagree with them a false prophet. You know, some of the most vicious and harsh people could easily call others wolves and Pharisees, or worse. When in reality, they're seeking their own kingdom. And so they justify turning over tables based on what Jesus did, but they ignore the commands of the New Testament to do this with gentleness and respect. Right? They find justification for their behavior and for their teaching while neglecting sanctification and Christ-likeness in their own lives. And second, they tend to lead people away from the truth. Right? They're running contrary to the apostles' teaching, contradicting the shepherds around them. You will never prove to them that they're in sin. Because for them, they get to define what that is. They will distort your understanding of the gospel and the will of God for their own ends. And they shift the line of orthodoxy and insist on defining it. And they may attack the system in order to gain credibility for their message. They may be architecting a novel new theological approach. And people may applaud them for it. And I've seen both saints and seasoned pastors attracted to novel teaching and then ignore shepherds who caution them not to stray from the faith delivered once for all to the saints. And this defective teaching and practice are tied to one another. Right? Their ambition may be masked by some right views on doctrine. They may be able to call some things out but they have an inflated view of their own discernment that's not met with personal humility. And so it leads to false teaching. And it also leads to bad fruit. So at the end of the day, they're not teachable themselves. Right? Their whole approach shows an appalling lack of humility and also fruitfulness in their own lives. But good trees bear good fruit. We see all this imagery in Scripture, the vine and the branches. You won't bear fruit apart from Christ. Psalm 1, planted by trees of water. And Jeremiah 17, the two trees in the wilderness. The the point there is abiding in the vine is where we are able to bear good fruit. Galatians 5 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, peace. With love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The appetites will make somebody driven by their passions. They may present themselves as emotionally stable, yet underneath they're ruled by that passion. Go back a few verses in Galatians, and there they are. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we'd like to think those who claim a certain amount of spiritual dominance might not be prone to the most appalling of those. But we find that that's often not the case. 
So this imagery of good and bad trees, it, you know, I mentioned that it was found in Jeremiah 17, and I've mentioned that passage before, so I'll try not to belabor it here. But the point is that rotten roots will bear bad fruit. You will know them by their fruit, point straight at the heart. One yields thorns and thistles, the other does not cease to bear fruit. One is parched, and the other is nurtured by the root, which is Christ. So you will not bear fruit apart from Christ. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. It's saying the same thing. It points to their heart motivation. A heart dominated by idols will lead to that bad fruit. So the idol is their personal kingdom above Christ's kingdom. They think that they're great, and they love it when you tell them that. Don't pamper a wolf. And from Jeremiah, you know, with the two trees, the conclusion is verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the minds to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Do you search your own heart? Are you willing to search your own heart? That, that's a problem with someone who is not teachable, is that they're not willing to search their own hearts. And they presume the justice of their cause when they should be skeptical of the deceitfulness of their hearts. And notice the final judgment here in Matthew 7.19. The tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Right? Jesus is ramming home this application. These folks may display a form of godliness, but without its power. And ultimately, just as John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, and there will come a judgment. All right, a genuine testimony, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right, this is a continuation of some of the thoughts from the last section. But the stress is no longer on the aggressiveness of the wolf. Instead, it's on this claim of a form of godliness. But the claim they make is that they follow the Lord, but in reality they lead people astray from the will of God. So Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right? Both the confession, Lord, Lord, and the actions, does the will of my Father, are expected. And it's not just a confession with no intent to follow. Right? So teaching and practice are tied to one another here. And someone might raise the question then, does this teach works righteousness? I've seen people go as far as to discount passages like this. They want to avoid the impression of teaching works. And I I don't think that's the point, though. The the point is that devotion to the Lord is not lip service. A changed heart 
will not be revealed in words alone. Right? A changed heart acts differently. Right? A theology that divorces our confection from our lives neglects the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. God changes people. Do you believe that? Right? That's key to the whole gospel message. It's the whole point of the new covenant. It's a better covenant. Right? God says, I will write my law on their hearts. But without a heart changed by the work of the Holy Spirit, our actions would indeed be vain works. But what the Sermon on the Mount shows us is that Jesus came to create a new people, citizens of a new kingdom, who are raised to new life. And this is not the letter of the law, but the response of a genuine heart devotion. It's a genuine testimony before the Lord. So to exclaim, Lord, Lord, when you don't know him is a false witness. It's deceitful. You say one thing and you do another. Is that you? Has that been you? Are you like the person who sees his face in a mirror and then turns away forgetting who you are? Are you willing to enter into public worship and then have no desire to follow the will of the Father in your life? Do you see the parallel here with you will recognize them by their fruit from the last section? And this is about fruit that comes from a changed heart. It's contrasting a false testimony and a genuine testimony. Two people may use words of devotion to the Lord, but the inward devotion brings a changed life. So, Cal, can you tell the difference? You will recognize them by their fruit. They cast out demons, but they don't follow the will of the Lord. And how does Jesus reply to them? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So it's those who have a genuine testimony who will enter the kingdom. And their outward devotion, Lord, Lord, matches their inward devotion. It's evidenced in their life. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right? Do you see how important this consistency is? A false testimony demeans the name of the Lord. Right? We want to see people come to worship the Lord. We want to be able to defend truth. We want to proclaim the gospel. It's no surprise that Paul says to Timothy... Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Right? This lack of consistency is a stumbling block to unbelievers. Even if they don't want to follow the will of the Lord themselves, when they see someone cry out, Lord, Lord, and then not follow, it raises a question. Why would you claim Christ if new life is not real? It's not true. What's the point? Brothers and sisters, may our confession match our lives. And may our desire to follow the will of our Father in heaven come from changed hearts. And may the church be filled with those changed by the work of the Spirit who can confess a genuine testimony. So Jesus is calling us to new life, lived out in the power of the Spirit. And if you... Look on your own life with disappointment at your failures. 
As you see the fruit of your life, if you're unsure of your own testimony before the Lord, there is hope in Christ. We have nowhere else to look for hope. New life starts by turning to Him. All right, a firm foundation. Let's start in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. So this last parable comes to this point of application. Having heard all the things that Jesus said, the one who does them will be considered wise. And the one who does not do them will be considered foolish and will suffer great loss. So the builders build... Their work is tested, and it's evaluated. You don't see a difference in the quality of the materials or a difference in the quality of the workmanship. Both were tested by similar weather. In a sense, it's very similar to that two trees example. So what's the difference between the two? With the trees, it was the root, the source of nourishment. With the builders, it's where they chose to build. The wise will build upon a firm foundation. You will build during your life. And some will work hard to build an excellent building. But a bad foundation undermines it all. You can build with excellent academic rigor. You can build with great energy. You can build with moral respectability. You can build with selfless service. But if you have a weak foundation, it will not stand. And there are plenty of examples of large church buildings that are sold and the doors are now closed. Or of people who had notoriety at one point and they didn't finish well. Brothers and sisters, build upon a firm foundation. So what is that firm foundation? Is it Christ himself? Is it his teaching? Is it doing his words? Well, strictly taking the text, it's following Christ doing his words. The one who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who builds his house on a rock. Yet no one can truly follow who does not know Christ. So faith in Christ results in new life, and the wise person who builds on a rock is the one who hears these words of mine and does them. These words summarize the teaching found in the Sermon on the Mount where he lays out what new life looks like 
And the one who does them is the person living out that new life. And Christ is who we come to for new life. No one can truly follow who does not know Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is not bringing the law into the New Testament. No, it's, it's something much greater. It's bringing the new covenant into fruition. It's so much more than being saved from the wrath to come. If you strip everything else away, then it starts with Christ believing his word and a faith that flourishes into new life. That is a firm foundation. It's entering into Christ's kingdom. And so for every person who hears these words of Christ, they will build and there will come a time of testing for both the wise and the foolish. But the wise person puts these words into practice. The fool may have heard the words but did not act, and great was the fall of that house. A narrow gate, a good tree, a genuine testimony, a firm foundation. Right? Jesus is calling out counterfeit faith. He points to the narrow gate, the way that leads to eternal life. He's calling us to a single-minded devotion. He wants us to be like the good tree, producing good fruit, not like the wolves. He calls us towards a genuine testimony to the goodness and virtue of following God's ways. And he calls us to put these things into practice, building on a firm foundation. So everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So if you've placed your faith in Christ, then in the power of the Spirit, you are called into this new life in Christ. And that should be a joy for us and not a burden. New life in Christ is tied to his kingdom vision for what his people are called to be. He's taking that promise of the new covenant and fleshing out for us what that looks like in practice. So seek him even if it means a narrow way. And know that the firm foundation of following begins with the person of Jesus Christ. And if you are struggling to follow, if you are discouraged by the fruit in your life, if you are unsure of your own testimony, new life starts by turning to him. So find hope in Christ this morning. So these verses highlight the importance of coming to Christ and following him, but don't let the weight of your sin prevent you from doing just that. There's a world of difference between hearts who willingly submit to Christ and those who obstinately resist. That is the two ways. So when we sin, we come to him and we ask for forgiveness because he is the source of new life. And following is a blessing and joy that comes to those who turn to him.